Welcome, welcome, welcome to Notes in the Net, a weekly tangential irreverent conversation that caters to the interests of liminal trickster mystics like you and like our good buddy Nintazen. Good buddy, that's weird. I had a truck when I was growing up, uh, you know, one of those like quintessential boy toys that was a uh, semi truck with a little attached trailer. And if you pressed down on it and the wheels went up into their axles, uh, it would say, come on, good buddy, let's rev it up. And I cannot think of the words good buddy without thinking of that little toy. Uh, (laughs) And sometimes I can't think of trucks on the freeway without thinking of that little toy. But that's neither here nor there. We're talking about Nintazen right now, who is the meditation master, the ninja, the Buddhist, the scholar, the mountain man, the genius, and the friend who is uh, been on the Nodes in the Net podcast, I think two or three times at this point, three or four times, I should say. Uh, and I, it's a delight to have him on again. Nintazen is just returning from a trip, or he was when we recorded this, from a trip to Japan, uh, which is where he, uh, you know, studied alongside his senseis in the uh, martial arts. And we have a great talk about like culture shock. Buddhism comes up. We have a we have a talk about enlightenment, awakening, and. You know, just in general, the the sort of knowledge that's available to us through our bodies. It's a wonderful conversation. Buckle up. You're going to have a great time. It's always a delight and a pleasure to get to talk to Nintazen. And I'm grateful to have a podcast uh, that gives me an excuse to do it. I would not say no to more Nintazen in my life. That's for damn sure. Neither should you. So listen to this episode. Uh, before you do, why don't you head to creekmasons.substack.com and sign up for our mailing list. You know, it's a newsletter. It publishes weekly with, uh, you know, posts about Lunar Lunacy, which is the Creek Mason Creative Coven's group art project. You're going to find ways to keep in touch with the Nodes in the Net podcast over on creekmasons.substack.com. Uh, you'll get notified when new episodes are posted. And of course, My blog, uh, which currently is just me writing, but I'm hoping by the end of 2024 that there will be other writers contributing to the weekly Friday column uh, with our views and the musings, rituals, and reframes appropriate to liminal trickster mystics. Uh, I think that you're going to love it, and you should definitely, please, if you wouldn't mind, por favor, signing up for the mailing list. To give you a taste of what goes on on the Creek Mason's blog, I'm going to read a little bit of an essay now. This is last Friday's piece called Honey Badgers, and I'm just going to dive right in. And then the next thing you hear will be this interview with Nintazen. As if Gen Alpha wasn't a chad enough name for the children born between 2014 and 2025, my algorithm fed me several videos this week in which they're being called the Honey Badgers. Why? Because they don't give a fuck. My daughter's generation seems to have crossed the threshold of the bardo to incarnate at this specific moment in history with the express purpose of fucking shit up. The supposed test for honey badgership is to ask your kid what they would do if another adult got into your 
the parents face to yell at you. These kids, they'll give answers like scream at him to go away or karate chop his balls. Bear in mind that this generation is, at their oldest, around nine. My own daughter went on a long rant about the serious kickboxing damage she'd inflict on anyone who dared to attempt to hurt her parents. Seriously overestimated, she is tiny. But hey, it's the size of the fight in the dog. The meme seems to have originated with a video of a road rage incident in which the adults are screaming at each other between parked cars and one of these honey badgers jumps right in the middle and lays into the opposing adult, neck cranked back, shouting up at him, dramatically thrusting a pointer away as if to banish him and his bullshit. There's video after video out there of kids passing the honey badger test. What made them so welcoming of conflict when their parents had mom make the out sick call into work until they were 25. It seems to me they're sensing what's needed. All right, there's more to that essay for certain. I go into the bardo and, uh, you know, new age soul contracts and things like that. It's, It's one of my favorites that I've written in a long time, and you should read it and let me know what you think in the comments or by following the links on the Creek Mason Substack to join us on Discord, uh, which is one of the places that you might find Nintazen, who who actually, I think we're talking about it as I record this, we're working on getting our meditation sangha back online, the digital sangha led by Nintazen, who is trained in the meditation arts. If you listen to this episode and you think to yourself, wow, I would love for this guy to teach me meditation, then join us on Discord. That'd be the way to do it. All right, let's jump into this episode, and I'll see you on the other side. Hey, Jeff. Hey. <laughs> uh, you know, I you're now the the first person besides JT to be on the show three times. I think the last time you were on the show, you were the first person to be on the show twice. So you are. Uh, I, I guess I'm like, I'm keeping score or something. But <laughs> <laughs> I need to listen I, to JT's episodes, actually, now that you mentioned that. Yeah. Well, I I appreciate you, uh, you know, taking the time to be with us, uh, you know, Buddhist expert, uh, ninja, uh, you know, environmentalist, bird protector. Uh, it's it's wonderful to talk to you always, and yeah, and also like uh, potentially like you could say like in the Chogyam Trungpa sense, you're kind of my spiritual friend too. Yeah, I'd I'd say that we talk enough and have had enough. Uh alignment i mean we were both late exactly the same amount of time today so we're connected in that way so yeah (laughs) (laughs) right yeah uh it is weird how that happens huh like yesterday uh every single meeting i had scheduled got got rescheduled like Mm -hmm. just sometimes the flow of the universe seems to be leading everyone into some kind of like synchronized susuration or something i don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. 
susurration? Is that like a susurrus murmuration? I think I think that's the right word for when uh, like all of the birds like launch at the same time and they're like that's kind a murmuration. Of Oh, it's a murmuration. Okay. Yeah. And a susurrus is the sound it makes. So I really like susurration. It's like it's, it's, a, it's the whole event at once, auditory and, and uh, collective. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an accidental portmanteau, I guess. Beautiful. Love it. <laughs> uh, you know, it's actually, that's, that's a fun uh, segue into the card I drew for our episode. I think we're, I want to talk to you a little bit about the trip you just got back from. Yeah. Um, but before we get to it, let's talk tarot. Uh, we drew the five of wands uh, for our conversation today, uh, which is, you know, of course, it's like five guys in very flamboyant medieval outfits, kind of like raving with their wands in the air. Uh, you can see it on the on the. Yeah, right. <laughs> what is that called? That that hand motion. I don't remember anymore. I, I I just picked it up in middle school. I can do the whole like wave one too, but I'm pretty yeah. good at. But uh, yeah, it was a it was a whole deal. I, I mean, I think that's figurating or hourglassing is the basic one. I don't, but I'm not in the scene enough to really know what it's yeah. called. Yeah, I think the idea behind it was that you'd have like glow sticks on little cords, and you'd yep. be like doing that move in front of somebody who's like tripping on acid or something and like uh enhancing the experience of being uh half drunk and half high and and totally totally tripping at at a like at a freeway underpass at four in the morning with music yeah raves are not like that anymore raves are all like mainstream and shishi and you just go to like a bar that's decided to have a rave there it's it's not it's not the same you know yeah yeah, they've, yeah. they've destroyed the uh, the undergroundness of it. Of course, it's yeah. Everything's got wands. Oh, sorry, sorry. What are you saying? Uh, I was just going to say everything's everything gets eaten eventually by the capitalist monster and and yeah. becomes sort of whitewashed and boring. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I think we got wands last time. I don't remember which wands, but we got a wands of some kind last time. Mm. So we're we're on a double wand pull. Yeah, well, it, you know, it's the suit of like fire, willpower. Um, it's the suit of like manifesting things into into the world. It's like, uh, you, well, the five of wands in particular. Th- these guys who are kind of like all doing their mosh pit thing are, uh, you know, none of them are really like hitting each other, but it does look like maybe there's some conflict going on or some discord and uh but they are also like some of them are very fierce and Mm. i think that 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 may be uh like part of it it's like a it's a competition but it's like a reality show competition almost where like the competing is uh part of the maybe the um the thing that they're expressing you know Mm -hmm. the it's like it's it's competition for the sake of creating something beautiful collaboratively, like the kind of competition that is uh, is, is like also collaborative. I don't know. I'm kind of repeating myself, but it's also it's a card about conflict, disagreements, tension, diversity, uh, and then like reversed as with a lot of the cards, 
it sort of gets turned inward and it can be about inner conflict or uh, maybe conflict avoidance that you're going through or uh, maybe some sort of tension release. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wonder if that brings anything up for you. Well, you know, uh, f- starting with a joke, because that's always good. Um, there's a very Three Stooges energy to the card. Uh, if you've seen a lot of Three Stooges uh, bits where they'll have long planks and they're always turning around with the long planks and knocking each other in the back of the head. Have you, have you seen that kind of classic cartoony Three Stooges yeah. trope? Because if you look, there's one guy who's got it over his shoulder and he's about to hit somebody in the face and has this kind of fierce expression. And um, it's also funny because it ties into the trip I, I got back from because as you've heard from other interviews, if you guys have listened, um, you know, I do Bujinkan uh, Budo Taijutsu, which is what a lot of people just call ninja stuff. <laughs> and um, that involves all of the weapons and all of the armor and all the stuff that samurai used to use. And um, there's a running joke in the art that when it's a really, really busy day in the headquarter dojo uh, in Japan, which is a fairly small building, um, whenever it's very, very busy, they'll say, okay, everybody, we're training in staves today. And you look around the room and there's about 75 people all cramming into this tiny little room and there's barely any room to train, let alone have six foot stabs within the hands of every single person in the room. And oh, so yeah. they seem to only do that when there's a lot of people and we're like, what the hell are these guys doing? Aren't they supposed to be these, you know, super situationally aware Japanese guys and couldn't we do something a bit more compact? But um, of course, as soon as I see this five of wands, it looks like training in that dojo. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Everybody's got all these long sticks and trying to figure out how to get them past each other. And they're all pointing different directions and knocking into each other. And um, one of the hidden lessons in that that we've found is, you know, these arts come from the battlefield. And what is a battlefield but a whole bunch of sticks and chaos back in the day, right? The samurai days when really people weren't fighting with swords. It was all spears and long stabs and big hammers and stuff. And so, like we one day all realized, wait, what if they're doing this to train our situational awareness and give what the closest they can give us to what a battlefield feels like, where you're bumping into each other, there's friendly fire, there's all these things, and you have to <laughs> navigate the space incredibly well with all these crazy sticks everywhere in your face. So that really mm. is pretty cool for Five of Wands because that happened this last trip where we had uh, a very, very busy class. And sure enough, he told us to get out the sticks. And then, of course, it was a form where you drag each other across the floor in three steps. And you're just constantly bouncing into each other. And it's a whole different kind of training uh, than, you know, being in a cage and UFC two on two, nice and focused. It really shows you the chaos of what real fighting used to be like. And usually what fighting is like uh, in the street uh, where there's more than one person involved or you're in a busy club and all of a sudden somebody just shoves you into somebody else and beer goes flying. Uh, So all (laughs) that is in this card. Uh, And of course, misunderstanding and conflicts. But again, like anything, if you're learning from it, it's about how to navigate really is what these things are kind of teaching us. If we're, if we take the hits with wisdom, you know, yeah. Have you read much uh Joe Abercrombie? Have you I have not. Uh you're you're gonna love it. I I am casting a spell that you will read this author. He's a, a wonderful sort of in your realm of like uh, you know, the Patrick Rothfusses and and uh I'm I'm I've taken your advice. I'm reading The Way of Kings. I was gonna say, uh, yeah. It, it's it's sort of in that realm. Uh but he does these like really gritty like 
uh, sort of realistic feeling. Uh, it's like grim dark kind of uh, <laughs> writing. And, uh, you know, he'll have like the characters who's like one of the main characters is like a inquisitor and he's like torturing people and it gets really dark and uh, sort of depressing. So like, be careful with your mental hygiene, of course, if you're uh, going into this author, like it, it, things rarely have happy endings as, as they, you know, in the brutal distant past uh, seem to seem to often go in that direction. Um, but one of the things that he does really well is write these battle scenes. And when you're watching like, you know, uh, whatever on television, people are like doing their fancy sword play and they're doing their spins. And it's like the Jedi's with their lightsabers are like, you know, doing their breakdancing moves. Uh, but in reality, it's like two sides of people just completely crush into each other and are like just flailing as best they can to not get suffocated. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that that's a, that's a really interesting thing that people who understand combat through Hollywood maybe don't have a, a good grasp on all the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Battle of the Bastards, I think, is one of the few things that kind of did that right. You know, Jon yeah. Snow literally almost dying from being suffocated under bodies. Uh, it's uh, it's another piece that they tell us in Japan that, you know, in the old days, you didn't know how long you had to teach a person. Because if somebody was going to come and sack your village, um, you might only have enough time to put a spear in their hands and tell them not to drop it. Uh, yeah. And, you know, then you've got these this idea of these long term Japanese martial arts that take decades to master and they wouldn't waste their time with you. You know, you have this trope of the guy sitting in the rain outside the dojo and asking and asking and asking. And one yeah. reason why that is, is because they didn't know when you were going to cut your foot on a piece of glass outside and die from sepsis or, you know, fall off of a horse mm. or who knows what. So the time investment was incredibly uh, risky. Yeah, And so when you have these people that make it to 60, 70, 80 years old doing martial arts, it's incredibly rare, you know? And so they would only do that with people who they really knew they could put that kind of time investment into. Mm. And I feel very lucky to have started this art when I was 15 because it, some of these martial arts and a lot of Japanese arts in general take so long uh, to really get a hold of. And it wasn't until this trip that I think I really started to learn in Japan because you know when you first get there there's the star shock right especially like the grand masters in the room and you just have to deal with that you know being by this guy yeah. that you've seen videos of and heard legends about and then of course the culture shock of being in Japan and in the dojo mm. and oh there's cool swords on the wall and what's this clapping and bowing we do with the shrines and <laughs> um, this third trip it was very much like I'm I'm home I'm in a completely comfortable space I know these people I've got my pictures with them I'm not trying to go up and like oh can I get a picture with Nagato sensei and get an autograph yeah. or something that's all gone it's just I'm there to train and mm. uh, because of that and of course, all the work I do back here in the States, um, I really felt like I could just train there this time. And speaking to kind of bring in the meta aspects of this conversation, speaking of that wave of us both being late at the same time and that interdependent arising and all that cool stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so much of this trip was about the feeling in the room coming from these people, um, because I finally could do that instead of being wrapped up in my own mental bullshit and starstruckness and all that, I could really feel 
what was coming out of them as people and as spiritual people, because they very, they very much are, at least in my opinion, and they've said so. <laughs> um, yeah. In, in, yeah. In, self-defined as spiritual. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's, a, that's a big part of the martial arts that you study, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. like, in, in a way it is uh, like you, you described uh, once in a conversation uh, that we were like discussing meditation and I was talking about how like I was trying to like monotask more and d- develop mindfulness while like doing the dishes and things like that. Uh, you described how cultures that study mindfulness and meditation deeply all tend to develop their own sort of like moving meditation. Mm. And it, it it's like yoga or Tai Chi or Kung Fu. Um, and all of these things in some way are uh, expressions of like distilled thought almost, right? Mm-hmm. Presence. Presence. That's a good word for it. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the proof is in the pudding. You know, I have a, I have some friends that do what's called ki aikido. Or it's a aikido just with the ki or chi or prana, you know, that concept all yeah. translated in different words. And uh, they have a teacher named Colin who is very, very good. And I've, been to a few of his seminars to kind of cross train and cause I just, they invite me and Colin's a cool guy. And um, he said something when, right when I got back from Japan that I've been saying for years and to hear it come from a key Aikido instructor made me very happy, which is that you can meditate all day and call yourself relaxed, but <laughs> you have no point of reference for that. If you've been stressed out your entire life, you know, cause that's where yeah. you're comfortable and two stressed people can say, Hey, are you relaxed? Yeah, I'm relaxed. Cool. Yeah. Relaxed. And that's it. <laughs> but if you take somebody who is genuinely and utterly settled and use them as a point of reference, then they can right. be like, okay, now look at this shoulder or look at this part in your belly. Or, I mean, feel how hard you're grabbing me. Like, where's that tension from, man? Are you like, are you trying to shake my hand or break it? You know? Yeah. And they then can say, okay, well, this meditation you're doing, you can call yourself relaxed, but that's all assumption. There's no trial and error and so when you Mm. come into these arts there's very much this moment of what can you actually do and how can you actually prove that you're relaxed in this very measurable way um so yeah that's exactly what i'm talking about it's it's this presence comes out of practice that is physically evident um and the funny thing is the more you go into that the more you can feel these things that come through the world Um, be that a tide that like you know, I know when my wife comes home, for example, I don't hear the car. I don't know anything like that. It's like a tide that, uh, that comes through the world and I can just say, hey, I got to hang up the phone. My wife is home and then I hear the car. You yeah, know? right. And I'm sure you've been married long enough. You you know what I'm talking oh, about. Oh, yeah. It, yeah. It's a very One natural brain. thing. Yeah. 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 It's a very natural thing. And so the more you do these arts uh, or just live as a human being with actual presence and not just rushing around um, and tightening up, um, you get to kind of flow with these things. And it's I found out, you know, that's actually the word ki in Zen, uh, especially in the West, you know, in, in, a, in America, ki is the thing you do in karate, where you go, ki, you know, you punch and yell. <laughs> yeah, do yeah, these yeah. Things. yeah, but ki actually is uh, like when you pluck a guitar string and it causes the string next to it to start to vibrate mm. because of the co- the shared vibration. That's ki uh, in Zen. So when you go see your master, the vibrations coming off that master causes yeah. you to then vibrate 
in the same way. They say that's more important than zazen, that the sitting, they say it's more important than the walking, that that is mm. the heart of Zen. Yeah. It's, uh, it's morphic resonance, right? Like, mm-hmm. so can I, I want to, I want to describe this experience that I had recently listening to uh, the movie of me to the movie of we, yeah. which is uh, it's Duncan Trussell's new audiobook that he made with Raghu Marcus. It's kind of like a long podcast. I highly recommend it. But at the end, they do this uh, piece like Ramdas makes an appearance, of course, because it's those two. Uh, so yeah. there has to be some Ramdas in it. Yeah. And uh, it's like post stroke. So he's like speaking very slowly and deliberately. And he's got this like intense vocal fry. And um, I think if I don't know exactly when the, the uh, conference that he was speaking at took place, uh, but it's clear that the people in the audience were very concerned about um, you know, the divisiveness of American culture and like the, the culture clash, the culture war, whatever you want to call it, this like impending civil war doom that we're uh, experiencing in America. And the, uh, you know, question from the audience comes to Ramdas and it's like, you know, uh, how do we, how do we heal this uh, conflict that we see everywhere right now? And how do we, how do we get along with people? And Ram Dass's advice was like, well, get along with yourself and then you, you won't have problems getting along with other people. And he talks about how, like, you know, he loves his, he, he just directs love at his own pain. You know, my aches, you know, cause he's an old guy at this point is shortly before he died, I think. And so I love my aches and I love my neurosis. And he just like, he's just, like you hear his voice, he's saying, I love you. And like to his own self, but Mm -hmm. this thing happened where I experienced hearing him say he loves me. And there, there was like a, uh, I don't know, some, some sort of trick he did with the inflection or the key. eye, maybe, uh, where I felt it through, time and space and distance and you know a microphone <laughs> that like oh ramdas actually thinks i'm lovable <laughs> like mm-hmm. this isn't just him talking about his own uh neuroses that he loves he's actually like expressing that like we're all lovable in this way and it like it was kind of a high that i floated on for like two or three weeks of just like Oh, now I realize I'm actually uh I'm lovable. Like what what is that? How are how how does that work, <laughs> you know? Like cuz that's it's similar I think to the um experience that you're getting um from your masters where there's like a um a sudden recognition through the attention of someone else of a potential in yourself or uh, like a calibration setting in yourself that you weren't aware was possible before you had this interaction. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, in the traditional sense, they say that that's a big role of karma, that to be hit that way uh, means that you had to have karma leading up to it to where you're receptive to that coming out. Mm. So to get it, um, so one piece of that is your own work that has kind of primed the pump uh, to receive mm. that that off the bat. Because you could have listened to that same lecture, say, five years ago, and it might not have done the same thing. 
Yeah. This is what they mean by secret teachings. It's not that they're under a bush somewhere. It's that you <laughs> have to like be in a certain place for them to hit you that way. And yeah. so I think that's part of it is, is your, your, the, the world's cooking you, so to speak, and how it get, makes you pick up on those, those feelings behind the words, like that moment with Ramdas. And part of it, you know, is his and others' ability to simply say things genuinely in the moment. Uh, a lot of us are stumbling from word to word, myself included, even in some parts of this podcast, because I get excited to see you, you know, and the next thing you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, but <laughs> yeah, really, so. those people, and the, when they're really, really present are and speaking in that presence, that comes through sometimes regardless of the words and regardless of the time or microphone, like you were saying, you know. Mm. So, and it, it's interesting you say this, because this is my first time going without my original teacher. Um, he... It's not that we had a falling out. As a matter of fact, I'm one of the few people he didn't have a falling out with. Um, mm. My teacher went through a period of uh, not so great mental health, I want to say. Uh, and I eventually moved on because I got my own teaching certificate and I have my own dojo now. And so he, him and I still oh, cool. talk and we're very close. Uh, but I can't really go train with him that much anymore. Um, as much as sometimes I do just to to visit but um, this is my first time going completely on my own to, to connect from my own feet and on my own ground. And it made me very aware of how much his karma, resonance, whatever you want to call it, was blocking what was actually going on over there that I could connect to on my own terms. So mm. again, bringing it back, like you're preparing to hear that from Ram Dass, me going on my own, that, that was my own action that somehow then created a state in me of higher receptivity. There, yeah. there was less uh, ink in the water, you know, yeah. to, to get over there and, and see what was going on, you know. And I'm sure the next time I go, I'll find out I'm even more clear and I was deluded this time. Uh, but, yeah. you know, and, and that's what's so beautiful about it. And the last thing I wanted to say about that is, you know, this thing that they call mantric vibration um, that, you know, you have the thelemites and the high magic people talking about vibrating mm. words out instead of saying, yeah, yeah. you know, in, in, uh, India, they've got whole sciences of how you scoop and pitch and waver things when you're saying certain things to make it hit a certain way. And that tradition goes mm. throughout the whole of the old world. And in Japan and in, uh, India and China, they have very specific ways that when they're really teaching you how to say these things, right. To create the effect that you felt. And I guarantee you, Ram Dass has had that training of yeah. some kind, you know, with the amount of immersion he did. And so, right. um, so three pieces, it's his training in vibration. Uh, it's your preparing to listen to that. And then four, it's just the connection that human beings can have, you know, when we're not, when we're actually listening and actually speaking and not just stumbling from thing to thing. Cause I guarantee you one reason it hits you is because you were so listening you know, yeah. not yeah. taking notes or, or anything like that. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I was. I think you're right. I think I was more open to it, uh, maybe as a result of like all of the the work that I've done lately. It's kind of, it's not so much, um, well, this, I don't know. It's not like you're earning uh, feeling lo Ram Dass's love, though. Like it, it doesn't feel like I have to... Um, 
Like I have to do a bunch of through this. Is, I think one of the main things we talked about last time is this efforting toward enlightenment and like trying to um, like achieve something in order to uh, feel that sense of like belonging and unity and union. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it feels a little bit more like, you know, you've got like two tuning forks. That's uh, that's the image that came to mind when you hit a tuning fork and it's like the same uh, note as another tuning fork. They both vibrate at the same time. Like exactly. the, the resonance goes through the air, it vibrates the air and that gets the other one going. Um, but if it's like covered in shit, <laughs> it's, it's going to have a harder time like picking up on those waves through the air. Mm-hmm. So it's not so much that you're like, it's not that the tuning fork is like building itself up to be a super buff tuning fork or something. It's just that like, I think what, what it is with the karma is you're, um, you're trying to figure out how to just let go and, and allow become receptive rather mm-hmm. than uh to earn in some way does that does that make yeah sense? it's more like the seasons changing you know certain things only ripen in, in certain seasons uh certain plants if you plant them in the, the different times they're not going to do so well it's nothing right. about earning it it's a, it's just about the right conditions for what's happening and i think that's why it's important to continue to revisit things you know there's this thing in spiritual traditions of repetition um, and one of the reasons why I think mm. that repetition is so key is because um, they're not trying to make you earn understanding a certain stanza. It's just there, if you repeat it enough, eventually you'll say that stanza when the conditions are right for it to actually oh. penetrate, right? Because <laughs> yeah. it's like it's like roulette, but eventually it's going to hit you. Like uh, you know, going through Nundro uh, through my Tibetan teachers, you know, you have to do it every day. And just you know, it's so interesting is when you do something like that every day different things highlight you know and Mm. because of the conditions of that day and the more you try to force that or control it um that control is its own condition right Mm. and it so there's the condition of control and the condition of not trying to control and they're going to open up different points of receptivity so that's why that's why it's good eventually you have effortful practices and there are things where you do control what's going on like that kind of meditation we last did together where you're very much controlling like where you're looking at Prajnaparamita and that kind of thing. And um, so it's not that either one is bad. It's just, they're going to light up different parts of you to receive different things. Yeah. And there's a lot of different parts to light up. I mean, yeah. there's, a, there's a big human experience. What so you're, uh, you know, like take me to Japan. You're in, uh, in this dojo with your, with your, What's the word for this person? Master, sensei? Uh, shihan is a good u- general shihan. word in Japan. Shihan is like uh, Shifu from China. Uh, it's, it just means master. Sensei, yeah. we also just call them all sensei all the time. That's that's a good catch-all for not offending anybody. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, I didn't want to be like culturally insensitive or anything. But like, yeah, so so you're, you've got your uh, Shihan in front mm-hmm. of you. And you, you are uh, experiencing them in this unfiltered way. You've like you've left your previous teacher behind, and you've um, you've uh, come, you know, to terms with Japanese culture. The culture shock has has sort of abated, and uh, and and the starstruckness has abated. You know, like so. Mm-hmm. These all feel like karmas that have been uh, sort of like peeled away. They're they're right. all just things that have sloughed off 
through mm. repetition, I guess. Yeah. And so what is the experience? What, like, what are, what, what are you absorbing? What are you vibrating with? Oh man. Thank you for that question. Cause that's one of the main things I wanted to talk about. Um, oh, yeah. So when I was first in the art, I, there's this, there was a certain vibe that was, I need, like you say, I need to earn this somehow. Um, that there's all these things that I need to do to get the, get it right, get the thing perfect. Um, and then all of a sudden I'll be worth myself, you know, cause like the, yeah. I had a lot of negative self-talk, uh, growing up and going through the stuff I went through. And so I had a lot of um, insecurity that was very much, mm. if I do this well enough, I will slay the insecurity inside me, you know, like I, <laughs> and if it's not perfect, then I can, then it's a whole new reason to be insecure again. Um, mm. And my old teacher kind of fed on that with us. Cause I think he had the same thing in him, not that he was being negative towards us, but all of us were kind of harmonizing on that. Yeah, And so my other Japan trips, we were alone a lot. It's like we'd go train and then we would immediately disappear into our little group. But this time when I went, I was just getting this uninterrupted vibe of inclusive play that Mm. everyone there was there to encourage us past our collective finish line. And it didn't matter if you messed up. It didn't matter if you died. It didn't matter if you did it the best anyone's ever seen it. The deep collective push, the deep collective urge was that get through it, man. You're, you're making it. And, you know, ninja, the nin of ninja is, is survival, endurance, perseverance. And, you know, when I was younger, it was all about like, yeah, grit, survive it. Yeah. You know, kind of thing. But now I realized that the actual vibe coming off these people is you got this, man, you're already great. And it doesn't matter Mm. if you fall on your face and fart we're all going to keep encouraging, <laughs> you know, and we're yeah. going to laugh with you. And of course, then karma, karmically again, as soon as I entered that space, next thing you know, I, I stayed at a, a hostel this time. That's a, like a hostel for all of the martial art people uh, oh. that are training there. And then we leave class and I've got friends from Germany and Russia and Poland and Spain, and they're from all over the world. And none of us speak the same language. But mm. we all speak the same language through the art together. Yeah. And so the encouragement was so palpable. And mm. it was really not only that, but it connected me to this larger global community, which in today's just world, it felt so it, – it's like the world the 90s was trying to make, you know, where everybody was just <laughs> together and like, yeah. I don't know. Like, it's that social experiment that seems to kind of have failed here, but it's still alive in this this Bujinkan community and just – so yeah, the, the vibe is just encouraging um, and and uh, supportive in a way I never expected because it's got all this stuff with you know armor and swords and fighting and we do yeah. hit the crap out of each other and throw each other on the ground with no pads. I mean, it's a Japanese samurai art. It's kick butt, especially with certain teachers. But underneath that all is a, is a deep realm of encouragement that I couldn't, I, it was so fun to connect to. And then my movement got better, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I, it really did. And my wife came with me this time. So but what I meant by alone is that I wasn't with any of my fellow students. Yeah. I wasn't with my teachers, but my wife also trains. And um, oh. it was really fun to get to take her there. She only got to come to two classes because she had a lot of stuff she had to do in Tokyo with other friends and that knocking mm. things off her bucket list. And yeah. that was great for me because I never had uh, traveled the country before. I normally only trained the whole two weeks I'm there. 
And so to mm. get to see the rest of the country is another part of this conversation that I, I'd like to talk about. But as far as uh, the dojo, the, the the pure encouragement and creativity of yeah. play. Yeah. I, I don't I, I don't want to, I don't want to, I want to definitely get to the, the travel aspect of it in the, the culture there. Um, but before we leave this word encouragement is really sticking out to me and it like, I don't know. My instinct is to kind of want to like break it down, like encourage. It's like instilling courage into you. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, I wonder why that word, the, the, I wonder what that brings up. Like the, um, like what is, it's the courage to what, or it's the, uh, to, to f- what you, do you know what I mean? Like, sure, sure. Cause that's, that really, it seems like the word that you're really resonating on is encouragement. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering like, where, what is the courage, you know? Yeah, I, I guess, you know, cur, uh, the cur of courage is heart in French. It, it comes from okay. mm-hmm, la cur. Uh, so that, that courage is, is, is a, is a certain heartfelt feeling. And um, what they're encouraging, I think, is just to go out there, fuck up, and see what happens. <laughs> um, yeah. There's a there's a certain creativity that, like, I've noticed a lot um, of people who start martial arts. You know, there there's a certain there's a trajectory of a lot of martial artists, and they usually start martial arts because there's something in them that wants to play a bit rougher than the other kids. I guess is some is yeah. part of it. Uh, <laughs> Or that's the innocent version of it, or there's the slightly more shadow side of it where they've been hurt somehow mm. and they don't want to get hurt like that again. Um, yeah. I've experienced both sides of that. I trained for the first portion of my life just because I was a kid who loved Ninja Turtles and, and Power Rangers and I wanted to kick and punch and flip and do all that cool stuff. But <laughs> I've also been physically assaulted. And I remember going mm. back to training how different it felt after I'd been physically assaulted and how that was something I did not want to happen again. I remember my legs going in jelly and shaking and getting my shoulder dislocated and all these things that was wow. from a, yeah, it was a party. Somebody's jealous ex just attacked me because I was talking to their wow. girl, even though they were separated. Uh, one of those yeah. things that happens. And I remember I've been training in martial arts for a decade at that point. And as soon as this guy came barreling at me, my legs were jelly, you know, uh, yeah. complete jelly. Um, yeah. And so I was like, I don't want that to happen. I want to be active when something like that comes my way, but you right. can't live like that because that's the martial arts thinking that turns people into preppers. And they're always thinking about, does <laughs> this work for real? And is it street strategic, strategical and all yeah, that right. stuff and you buy weapons. And it's just, that's a, it's a phase to go through. Um, but mm. really that's not what it's about. Not when I was over there and I've noticed that. So the encouragement to get back to your question is to be less afraid of that those things do happen and that they're okay, but also to play in a way that's non-perfectionist um, to even go back to the the little kid version. So take the assault out of it and just the kids that want to run and jump and flip and be Ninja Turtles. Even then there's like, well, I got to do the flip better. I got to flip higher or, or kick harder or, you know, whatever. And it takes all that out and it just encourages you to play but also encourages you to go out into the battlefield and still be playing instead of trying to fight some demon that you have made mean mm-hmm. some kind of uh, life dragon, you know, like that you have to slay. And I do mm-hmm. think that um, one of the greatest accomplishments in martial arts, I think it's the main reason we call it martial still, because it's not really martial. I mean, we're not going off into Afghanistan or anything like that. And I mean, it, it's a different no. kind of art now. I think the martial part is slaying the inner 
fighter. Um, the thing that wants to convince you all these things are dangerous, convince you the world is dangerous, um, but it's not. It's a place of freedom and play, uh, even amidst all the demons. Yeah, that's... It's- Wow. So, I mean, like that's, that's kind of, it's encouraging you what, what that, all of that kind of like brings up for me is a return to that, like childlike, uh, you know, I, I look at, um, you know, like a five-year-old, like when my daughter was a little bit younger, not that she's completely lost this, but she's getting into more of the like teen era where uh, things are a little bit more complicated and like social dynamics are a little bit more confusing. Um, But uh, that like five-year-old kind of like fuck around and find out mentality, um, you know, like the, the word that comes to mind, this is something that I've uh, been exploring in myself because I have, um, you know, my own feelings of guilt or shame around being uh maybe a little bit too much of a like maybe someone who who derives joy even potentially at times at the expense of others Mm. um maybe this is something that like i i dealt with in childhood where i began to believe myself to be like some sort of psychopath or something. Mm. Like I, I, I started, I, I became very sheltered and armored and shut off from other people. And I, I wasn't able to feel their feelings. And so I believed that I had like the psychopath gene and I, I was never going to be able to experience empathy. And then I had this like whole, you know, empathy awakening when I had my first like, uh, uh, helping profession kind of job as a, a nurse assistant. Um, but, uh, before that, this whole like shadow side of myself that I was like obsessed with was like, I'm a psychopath and, uh, what the like shadow work that I've done on that recently, because I've noticed that like, if someone cuts me off in traffic or whatever, I have this huge outrage reaction and I like completely overreact and I get really pissed off. And so I, I was kind of like mindful, you know, while driving and noticed that I was like pissed at this guy. And, uh, and it, it gave me an opportunity to be like, okay, so how do I uh, contain the potential for that kind of like reckless behavior that's like fun for me, but maybe puts other people in an uncomfortable position. Like how do I contain that in myself? And, uh, and I realized it was this, it's this joy scientist thing. And I talked about this a bunch on the, uh, the Creek Mason discord. It's like, it's someone who has that like childish ability to voraciously explore life and figure out like what feels good and what's worth pursuing and how to have fun and how to play. And, uh, and that's kind of like, that's something that I think children frequently get discouraged from expressing uh, because you know, they've got to like sit still in their, in their school seats or whatever, and, you know, mm-hmm. learn their times tables or, or, you know, what have you. And it's, it's a very like structured life that we thrust upon them so that they can be good cogs in capitalism. But like that, 
voracious, you know, um, you know, like as you are as a child, just exploring the world to consider that mode of being enough is i think kind of like what you're what you're um i'm gonna say sensei because i forgot the other word but it's it's like it's what they're what they're trying to reawaken in you it seems like like Mm -hmm. it's okay if you mess up it's okay if you um you know maybe like stub somebody else's toe while you're doing your flips, you know, because you're, you're having fun trying to figure out what feels good for you. Like it's, it's, uh, it's not always so serious, you know, like that's, I I think core, you know, the French heart that, that is who has more heart than children, you know, that like that just heart on your sleeve exploration of the world is, uh, something that I think like, if we bring back utopia, if we bring back the Garden of Eden, that's the that's the energy we're we're gonna populate it with, you know, or the energy that's gonna manifest it. Yeah, and you're 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 absolutely picking up on all of it because there's a concept in this art called the heart of the three year old that we're all supposed, yes that we're all supposed to embody this idea that like I'm gonna run and try to jump on that trampoline and even if I sprain my ankle I'm gonna be right back out there the next day. You know, yeah. it doesn't mean that I'm a failure and that I can't trampoline, you know, and yeah. it's so funny you say that. And another thing is that, oh, my gosh, I'm a sociopath thing. Um, I think that's a natural phase of human development. The more I've learned people who have been opening up about that, especially in middle school, you know, I had the same thing. I was like, man, I I, I, I hate animal cruelty, but I could kill a person, you know, kind of thing. I've heard a yeah. lot of edge say that, you know. And yeah. there is a certain thing of where when you're isolated a lot that can come out, um, the empathy can wane and wax. And one thing again about martial arts, particularly this one that's so beautiful is you have to touch another person. You have mm. to physically touch them and do it with them and encourage them. And you can be, you can pick up on who doesn't want you to succeed automatically. Like the moment you put your hands on them or, or do a form with them or whatever, or spar with them, the moment you're with them, you're like, this person does not want me to succeed. They've got some other agenda. And then I yeah. give up trying to make it work. You know, I'll, I'll just go, okay, today's my day to learn how to fall, to learn how to roll, to learn how to, you know, get hit. Uh, because this person isn't going to let anything work on me. And of course, there are forms of martial arts where you do make it work. But that's, you know, that's one reason why I love my martial art. It still has it of like, well, if this guy's like this, gouge his eyes out. <laughs> you know, and because and yeah. they're they're doing some weird bullshit game where they're like, no, this doesn't work on me. This isn't real. And it's because they what they don't realize is when you're training together, you're not fighting. You're training together to help yeah. each other get better. And so anytime, and that's, and I've seen the Japanese do this where there's somebody who is an absolute douchebag who's been, you know, screwing up the class all day and they'll beat the shit out of that guy, you know, and <laughs> to, to show you that one, this stuff works and two, that that's just not the way to be in the dojo. It's a, it's a sacred bond between two people mm. to encourage each other's success. And so I, you're hitting you're hitting all the key points, man. But it's it's about that childlike heart, 
It's about connecting with other people to keep the empathy valve running because it, it's very easy to just start to realize and get in your head that like, no, I am, I am enough and I can do all these things alone and uh, screw other people there. You know, I'll never connect to them. And you have to connect yeah. to people to do martial arts. If you're not connected, you're not doing martial arts. Um, mm. And that's something is it's, it's a very, uh, you know, it's something that's so interesting with guns. Cause it's like that you don't need to be connected to the person. It's just point and click. And yeah, uh, right. even in swordplay uh, and archery, there's a sense of connection that you have to have with, the, with what you're doing. And I'm sure people who really shoot guns out there, they'd probably correct me and say, oh, I, you know, I have this felt, felt connection with the target. And, you know, maybe hunters mm-hmm. is different, you know, I guess. But yeah. I don't know. It, it's a, I'm probably speaking beyond my, my, my uh, I'm, what do they call it? A, a punching out of my weight class. I'm trying to keep the metaphors in the right yeah. place. But uh, <laughs> There you go. Yeah. Anyway, the point is, uh, especially this martial art and a lot of Japanese martial arts, the more you follow them, uh, connection is a key factor. Even these key Aikido people I was talking about, they're like, these are, these arts aren't just, just healing arts. They're, they're connective arts. They teach you how to connect to the world around you and mm. the people around you. A fun phrase I got from Japan this trip was enlightenment comes from the souls of the feet, uh, which I think mm. is a really interesting thing. And a lot of Japanese arts are deeply rooted in, in the feet. Um, and I found like there's these stones mm-hmm. I took pictures of in these shrines that had these like some like a monk had just pressed his feet in the rock, and then they had these uh-huh. mandalas in the where the soles of his feet were. And I realized that that's what that art's about. I'd always wondered what all these mandala feet were in Japan. Thought it was just the foot uh-huh. fetish thing that everybody else knows about, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's actually uh, there's an actual like thousand year old saying uh, in Jap in Japanese of enlightenment comes from the soles of the feet, and you can see it walking towards you. You can see it in how you connect to the ground. Um, it's pretty cool. Mm. Yeah. Well, let's get, let's get into the shrines. Cause one of the things that you told me in advance of this conversation is that the, uh, the like architecture of these like holy sites, uh, was something that you could intuit the presence of presence in. Mm-hmm. It's like the things were designed in order to like, first of all, as a result of the cultivation of mindful presence, mindful awareness, and also in order to like, um, kind of like trick your brain, it's it almost feels like um, like a a priming kind of uh, mechanism where like uh, because you're in a certain environment, you you like obey the rules of that environment more naturally, and and the like conscious design of these. Uh, holy sites was was something that you that I I really wanted to dive more deeply into. Yeah, and what's even cooler is that it's not just the holy sites; it's the trains, it's the food, it's the parks. Oh wow! It's it's, it's not just the holy sites. Uh, to to give the listeners a bit more background, what I was trying to say was that we focus so much on meditation on the inside uh, and how it makes how our inner environment works and how we're, how we feel on the inside and how all that fits together. And it's great. But if I could describe Japanese arts, uh, after this last trip, it's taking all of the effects of inner cultivation, but doing it in the external physical world. So that it reflects back in you automatically, whether you're a meditator or not that Mm. whenever, so like, you know, I work a lot with plants and, uh, um, and uh, landscapers because I've worked in sustainability and conservation. And so I, I've, I'm in that world a lot in the West and 
we like to take plants and force them to grow in a place, you know, yes. um, with fertilizers and with pruning and with all kinds of things. We pick them up out of the ground and force them to do a thing. And sure, in Japan, they do the same thing. But one thing that I've noticed that was very different was somehow these gardens felt like they were for the plants, but with human intelligence. But like, mm. instead of the human intelligence being directed at how can I make this exactly how I want it? It was how can I make this exactly how the plants want it? So how it wants to be. How it yeah. wants to be and how it wants to fit together. And somehow following that path, if you just sit in these places, I found myself in sometimes the most beautifully effortless meditative awareness because of my surroundings, not because of any work I was doing, quote unquote, spiritually. And mm. a lot of people I hear talk about this, about how they can fall asleep on a Japanese train and never feel like they're in danger um, the general mm. way that the society feels, which of course is part of the culture shock thing. Cause you know, Japan has a lot of problems with stress and repression and suicide and all of yeah, these things right. that clearly, you know, it's not universal. This is not like, Oh, they figured out the perfect society. No society is perfect, but having been right. a meditator and having been doing martial arts, I was very struck this time uh, at how easier it was to go to those places with these surroundings, be them religious or not. Because it's just the thoughtfulness and um, the way that it was done for the rooms and for your sake, not some other person's agenda. You know, you go to the to, to the West and there's like this these palaces and gardens and it's all like it's you're going to you're going to feel King Charles in this place. You know, like this is what he <laughs> wants you to feel. This is how he wants you to feel. But in Japan, it's yeah. like we're going to make the plants feel how the plants want to feel so that they can show you effortlessness from their own arrangement, from their own being. And yeah, yeah, that, that was, it was very fun. Um, Kyoto though, I got to say is the, one of those haunted places I've ever been. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. That place is, I had the most intense dreams the whole time I was there and they all had the same feeling. I don't normally get that where every single dream mm. every night was if it was, it was, if it was coming from the same emotion and it wasn't mine. It didn't feel like it was mine. It was like something external was like, I know all your shit. And I'm going to show it to you in the way that is going to deeply disturb you to, Yikes. <laughs> yeah, but to get you out of, to let, make you let go of it, make you let go of this baggage mm. that I know you have. And as soon as I left Kyoto, that all stopped. Uh, very intense vibe in Kyoto. Let's, let's dive into that uh, in two seconds. I'll be right back. Sure. So I do, I do want to uh, like, just, you know, not, let the the comment about like the mindfulness of the surroundings pass entirely mm -hmm. uh, without without any acknowledgement. There there's something that um and then I I also like let's talk about how haunted Kyoto is. <laughs> but uh, I mentioned it. Okay, great, great, great. Uh, so there's uh well, it's this. It reminds me of um. Like the way you described the gardens growing reminded me of like some of the movements that I've seen on like TikTok for like modern farming that are like, you know, permaculture based or, uh, you know, some people call it chaos gardening where they just like kind of like throw the seeds wherever the seeds land. And that's that's what they tend the to tell you where they want to live. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 there's also this. um you know, like this, I guess it's kind of like considered indigenous wisdom of like uh, stewardship of the land 
where, um, you know, the Native Americans in my area were known for doing like controlled burns of the, uh, you know, the old growth redwoods in our area. And it uh, prevented for, you know, thousands of years, the kind of like horrible conflagrations that are happening now that are like, uh, you know, destroying forests completely Mm -hmm. because the underbrush hasn't been cleared out and things like this. And so uh, I guess uh, what I'm, where is the question in that? It's like, uh, what's, what is it? I don't know. Maybe this is also outside of your weight class or swimming outside of your lane or whatever Mm -hmm. metaphor you want to use. But like, I feel like you'll have something to say about it. Like this, this difference in American culture and the culture that you just came from uh, visiting. That's like the design aesthetics that we bake into, like even our technology and our apps and, you know, whatever else uh, seems to inspire or, or be designed to inflict like a mindset that is what it's like it's like competitive and and carnal and um you know like red and tooth and claw kind of you know and and uh desensitized and brutal like there's a lot of brutal architecture where i live mm-hmm. it's like a whole it's like an actual architecture movement called brutalism, brutalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um so like what what is it about um what what accounts for that difference or or what is the you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I do want to say that you know, I it's not just visiting uh Japan. I've been doing Japanese arts and learning the language and being with Japanese people since I was uh 8 years old. Um, so it, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's, it's more deeper cooked than that. And also Japan has the same thing. It has the cutthroat. It has the s- negative survival of the fittest. You know, it's the reason why you can make samurai movies into Westerns and Westerns into samurai movies so easily. The, the, the Edo period there and the wild West here were almost identical cultural periods. And yeah. of course, when you're in Japanese business, it's just as cutthroat and carnal and, there's a lot of Japanese society that's meant to be brutal in a lot of ways, uh, but it's under mm. it's underneath all the pretty. Uh, so they're, we're like mirror images of each other. Mm. We're deeply, deeply connected since World War II. Um, mm. And I mean, I just found out this last trip that a lot of the martial arts taught to Americans after World War II were taught to us specifically wrong to get us killed and hurt because they didn't want us to succeed because we just dropped two atom bombs on them. So a lot of the martial arts in the 1950s and 60s that were coming to the U.S. were purposefully taught to us wrong because fuck Americans. Uh, But because they don't want to do this whole, like, they don't want to say that outright. They're not like Americans in Manhattan just flipping the bird and, you know, going on with their day. They did it in this, like, underhanded, um, but just as brutal way. So I don't want to, you know... uh, ivory tower the japanese culture in any way and say oh it's just this beautiful way of life that i came back from and it's so beautiful right um but as far as like the difference goes that you're kind of touching on and of course that i have been kind of waxing poetic about because i have spent the time to cut through all that and meditate and the meditation and the martial arts and connecting with that genuine japanese culture that as best as i can um i think the main difference is um our countries, uh, the power of place is real. 
And the mm. power of history is very real because, um, you know, there's, there's this great movie uh, called No Country for Old Men. Um, yeah. Very famous classic movie. Some people consider it one of the best pieces of cinema ever made. And uh, I really love the film. There's a line in that movie where Tommy uh, uh, Lee Jones's character simply says, this country's hard on people. Mm. And there is an extremism to the American landscape. Uh, our endless great plains, our unsurmountable Rocky Mountains, the amount of weather changes that we get here, and this the scope of it all, and the yeah. large, crazy animals. I mean, when people first got here, there were Rocky Mountain grizzly bears that were bigger than Escalades that could just pick you up and toss you, you know? And yeah. there, there is an extremism in this landscape that mm. no matter who you are, when you come to this land, it will get in you. And I'm very aware of that this last trip because it'd been 10 years since I've been to Japan this time. And since then mm. I've been doing, to pull it back to your comments on native stuff, you know, I've been working with my native family um, to connect with them and also do native plants and agriculture as, as, as you mentioned. And I really kind of settled into my Americanness these last 10 years, you know, a bloom where you're planted kind of mentality. And mm. then, yeah. then going back to Japan, and realizing how big of a part it was in the 90s in America and how there's some things that are no longer in the American zeitgeist that are still happening over there because it's just how it happens over there. It wasn't a fad. It's just how it is. <laughs> and to feel all of my past that it brought up. And, you know, my first Japan trip, I was only 15 years old. And just the amount of stuff that is um, deeply ingrained in me about that place that was that had me so anti-American for so long because I went to Japan. It's like I'm going to do everything I can to be as Japanese as possible and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And of course, it's it's, a, it's it'll never happen. You know, you're born where you're born. Your parents are your parents. And so to yeah. come back after this trip where I was weirdly so effortlessly in Japan. You know, my Japanese is better than it's ever been. All this culture shock was gone. I've been all up and down the country now. And to then come back and also I, I felt that tension of like these this Japanese stuff in me and the American stuff in me and how the more I tried to force this Japanese-ness that I love so much um, while in the American landscape doesn't make sense. Just like trying to force my Americanness when I'm in Japan mm. doesn't make sense. So yeah. The power of place is very real. And I think that what you're commenting on is less about um, – any one specific piece of culture, but simply the spirit of this land and, mm. and how it arises up through people uh, and, and the history that's been built here, the blood that's in the soil, the, the stuff we've done from slavery to the genocide of native Americans to then trying to reconcile that. And it's been 200 years and there's no longer anybody that is not a first nations person that anybody can consider quote unquote native, even though they were born here. Um, and it's yeah. funny because I came back and this is again, a very interesting thing. So when I was born, uh, my medicine woman, uh, from, she's a Ponca um, woman gave me a red tail hawk feather, um, that I have, I've had my entire life that when my car was stolen, I had lost, uh, because it was mm. in my car. And, um, while I was in Japan, apparently she heard about that. And when I came back from Japan with all these totems and trinkets from the shrines I went to, what was waiting for me, but a new red tail hawk feather from my medicine woman. And mm. I was, and I, and I had specifically taken one of my medicine stones from Yellowstone 
to the top of one of the sacred mountains in Japan because I wanted to link my medicines. I didn't want them to be uh, in opposition anymore. And so I had already taken yeah. that stone from Yellowstone, which is my kind of spiritual homeland. And then here's my mm. the red-tailed hawk feather coming back right at the same time to show yeah. that, that something about that timing was just too perfect. Um, so there is something about the, the power of these places and, and the landscape that is deeper than yeah. all, all the culture, the behavior, the architecture, um, the class wars and all that stuff. Yeah. That, like, I mean, to, to this, I'll, I'll end on this one to show it's not so bad. Um, because my Japanese is better, I saw a political ad. And uh, there is this guy, and he's just this classic Japanese smiling guy in a suit. And it had some Japanese next to him, blue sky behind him. And I realized the text next to his face said, Japan first. Just like oh, America yeah. first. So he yeah. was echoing Trump because he wanted to put Japan first and do he wanted to do the yeah. Trump agenda in Japan. So they're it, yeah. they're they're so deeply connected. It yeah. doesn't look like American yeah. extremism. It's blue skies and smiling faces. It's not, you know, cool, gritty font and orange, you know, Mr. Orange or anything like that. But they still yeah, have right. that, you know, America first and Japan first now. And it's 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 crazy how connected we are. It's it's wild. Yeah. Yeah. It's happening everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, what struck it, what stuck out to me about what you were just describing is it kind of is like uh, the way that you've sort of embraced your, um, your like mountain man roots. I've, I've heard you talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, is a little bit like, uh, like the opposite of monoculture uh, farming, where you like pick up a plant and force it to grow somewhere it doesn't want to grow and shower it with pesticides and fertilizers and stuff just to make it, you know, as, as productive as possible. Like I, I almost feel like what you're, um, what you're advocating for is like grow, grow with, (laughs) grow with what you're, what you were, you were born in a specific place for a specific reason to specific parents Mm -hmm. for a specific reason. But in a globalized time. Yeah. And that, and that. Right. That's, there's, I think, I mean, there must be a way to become fully present to everything that you are experiencing uh, in order to like, sort of recognize what's being asked of you from the incarnation that you've uh, found yourself manifested into. And like, it is, it is where you're from and, and the culture and politics and art and everything from where you're from. And it is the opportunities to explore other things Mm -hmm. and what you feel drawn toward and what you feel authentic pulled toward like all of it is just stuff to learn through. It seems like yeah, and, we've and, all been planted near airports. You know, it's part of our yeah. environment now. You know, it, it's it, it's something you can still engage right. in and still you can be. I mean, it's 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 actually a saying as old as the hippies of you know, act local, think global. Um, yeah, and, and so it's a thing that is is I think really part of it because if you're trying to just be one person. Uh, it can be very, very hard. And uh, there were eras of history where that was possible, you know, and there are certain environments in this world and proclivities of people that can still do that. I'm actually jealous of the people who have just been, you know, 
painter since the moment they could could finger paint. You know, I know you know people like that. Like they they did they've done yeah. that thing their whole dang life. I'm so jealous of those people because I just can't do that. <laughs> and I, they're some of my favorite people because the the degree of skill they reach is just so mind blowing. Eventually, but that's just yeah. who they are. And so I think you're right. I think there is a way to become fully present of what we're doing. And I think the only way is to keep playing. Like to pull it back to this martial arts thing and the demons it's helped me slay. Right. Uh, the Grand Master before after he showed anything he doesn't teach anymore he's a uh, he's actually passed on his grandmastership to some other guys as a collective now which is pretty cool to do um and yeah, so yeah right yeah and he but every one of the books about him is titled this that i'm about to tell you because after every time he showed something for us to train him he would say hi which is the japanese word for yes so he would go hi okay play and so oh, he yeah. said it every time. So one of the books about him is Hi, Okay, Play. He said it so often. Yeah. And this is a guy who's broken yeah. a spear with his bare hand. You know, this is a guy who <laughs> inflicted the most pain I've ever felt in my life, you know, to my face. <laughs> and he's, he's just <laughs> laughing and having a good time. And you, it never feels evil. It never feels like it's mm. meant to hurt you. It's just that the pain is how the transmission happens. It, it's... Yeah, it's like birth. You know, there's pain involved, but it's not that it's malignant pain. It's just how you learn this message he's trying to teach you about letting go and being in the moment and taking your taking your licks and still getting up and laughing about it. Yeah. Hi. Okay. Play. Hi. Okay. Play. <laughs> and it's funny because you know I, I'm not being. I'm trying not to be, you know, I don't like to do other countries' uh, accents, but he did have the whole LR thing that the people oh, make fun yeah. of in Japan. But the thing that made that a beautiful play on words to me is, hi, okay, pure, pray, play. Yeah, yeah. And I think he knew that because the Jap the art I study, they love wordplay and they love playing with English mm. and Japanese back and forth. Uh, the last one of my yeah. teachers here, he the word for uh, kill in Japanese, koros, means to kill. And the technique he was teaching is called cross. So, koros, koros. And he was talking yeah. about like kill with a cross, killed on the cross. And so he was making all these like jokes about killing on the cross mm. or killing with the cross. And they're, they're funny people. And that's the other thing I picked up. They're just funny, fun people. And uh, the Tezuka yeah. Sensei is one that I train with. That I, I mean, nobody here is going to know who Tezuka Sensei is, but he's a younger guy. He was so much fun to play with. He even used my wife as a training partner and she was laughing the whole time. And, uh, having a good old good old time. It's a it's beautiful, really, you know. Because then there are Japanese arts where it's not like that, where it's very much just laser focus, no laughing, absolutely like moving like robots kind of thing. And there's a place for that. They they have us do that sometimes. Yeah. But this place is so fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, uh, so of course, I guess that's like the important thing for us is like uh, as Westerners to remember is like nowhere is a monoculture. Mm -hmm. Everywhere has uh nuance and and all of that all of that uh complicated history and complicated present and yep. there's uh you know awesome impressions that we can get and also there's a whole bunch of other stuff like the smiling guy on the poster that sure. you know if i didn't read i don't read japanese it would look like oh look how, nice. how nice they these japanese politicians are yeah <laughs> and you know it, uh, meaning and connection is so important because the same thing happens in america we're not a monoculture either so like you fly to la as uh, uh, even as an american like say i fly to la i'm not gonna get all of la i couldn't do it and just like i'm not nope. gonna get a fraction of california let alone louisiana nope. 
And so, you know, I was sitting in this tea house in Japan that was connected to our hotel. And I finally, I had this moment where I was like, there's nothing different between this and an abandoned Southern tea house. They're both just as empty right now. They're just as they serve the exact same function of serving tea and having art on the wall and giving you a soft place to sit. And the only thing that makes a real tea house is if you know the person there, if it's your grandmother's house or if it's your best friend's or your Mm. mentor's house, then there's a different feeling in that place. The rest is all just walls, you know, that have history painted on those walls and that history changes the art style and it changes the architecture and all that stuff. But what really makes a place special, that thing I've noticed a lot of people are looking for when they go travel all over the world and do this whole thing, they're looking for some kind of connection and they mistake culture shock for connection. They're like, oh my Mm. gosh, this place is so magical, the way they do their art and the way they have their trains and the way they live their lives. But really, (laughs) like that's all an assumption. Like you're saying, no, there's no one way to be Japanese. There's no one way to be an American. And yeah. So, but that culture shock makes them feel like they're like, I finally understand the thing. And then they end up appropriating or doing who knows what. And so even in America, the most powerful thing is the places that you have connections with. And that comes up through the landscape and it comes up through our hearts and our courage to go out and find those places. Mm. That's so wonderful. I I'm so tempted to to end us there, but I I what do you think? Can we can we squeeze in the ghost story? We're already past an hour. Yeah, I'll squeeze in one little ghost story. Um, yeah. So there's this place you see all over on the internet called uh, Inari Taisha. Uh, it's the shrine that has all the red gates, uh, like the thousands of red gates, all one after the other. And there's these fox statues there. Uh, it's on every tourism blog ever. Um, and when I went there, the moment I get off the train, it's a wave of people and we're going into this place and it's full of, you know, it feels as touristy as it can be. And it's a place I've wanted to go ever since I was little. And it was all right. But at the same time, I was like, this is what's, what's really going on here. Like, what is, what is this? And I start getting pushed further and further up the mountain. Um, and I decided I wanted to summit the mountain. And of course, just like a lot of things in life, the harder the going gets, the less people there are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so eventually I get up to the dark to the the deeper parts of this mountain and the the amount of cultural energy there and the amount of of, of just stuff. And you know this whole whole t- trip I've been opening up to the power of place and and presence and there's barely anybody around anymore and I felt the most out of my depth I have ever felt. It felt as if this place was going to eat me because of how little I knew what I was doing. I've never been in a place like that. And it's just, you know, and this is in one of the hearts of Kyoto. It's up this mountain and everything's green and mossy and there's these fox statues everywhere. And it's the reason I call it a ghost story is because I never felt more in danger and also rude. Like I, I could never, it's like, I could never understand how to possibly be reverent enough of this place. Um, mm. And it's just, it's, it was wild. And, you know, cause I, I'd, it's, it's one of the most popular tourist places in Japan. And, and I could not believe the amount of depth that was in that place. And all the foxes have this like sneer that they're looking at you. And th- this is the lore behind it. Um, the foxes are the spirits of uh, our messengers of Inari 
who's one of the highest Shinto gods there is. Um, he was originally the god of rice, uh, but because rice became such a staple of keeping people alive, uh, anytime you wanted to stay alive or be successful, you would usually offer to Inari. So he's considered no, mm. or she, depending on the era, he or she is considered the god of commerce, brothels, uh, uh, success, <laughs> um, rice, prosperity. And these foxes are kind of like the, a cultural parallel to Odin's ravens. They come and go from okay. the world of men and they know every single secret of man that could ever be known. And they whisper the Minunari's ear and take these around. And the idea is that they know everything about you and it's impossible to trick them. But if you do, they, they, they go in your service for the rest of your life. And you have this like the most amazing you know, spirit guide there was. Um, but I very much felt that here, these foxes and this energy of this place somehow knew me better than I could ever know myself and mm. was just kind of saying, you're doing it wrong. You like go home. <laughs> <laughs> you could oh, never. Ouch. I know. <laughs> but of course, then I bought myself a couple little fox shrines from the priestess and took them home with me. Cause I was, <laughs> I, I'm going to try. Um, and of course, <laughs> the dreams start happening. Uh, and it was just really, mm really wild. And, you know, there was one point where Kyoto completely burned down, like from every, like lots of people died, whole, whole freaking city burned down. And you can just oh, feel wow. it there, the amount of culture and the amount of um, loss and art that has built up over that time. But that shrine, I got to say, I've never felt anything like it. That, that, that deep, like, <clears throat> like underneath <laughs> deep growl. Yeah. Um, but Hey, I might be projecting. It's just part of also the room I was in was inexplicably wet all the time. No matter, you could run the humidifier all day long with an air conditioner, close all the windows. And it had this wetness that just like <laughs> this supernatural wetness with these dreams. And then the moment you'd leave the room, everything would be fine. Um, so just, Ooh. just weird, weird thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. I guess that's a ghost story. I didn't actually see a ghost, but I've never felt a presence like that in my life. I've been to, yeah. New Orleans, I've been to Medicine Wheels, I've been to all kinds of, I've been to, you know, churches in Venice, and this was something else that felt deeply dissatisfied. <laughs> somewhat dangerous. <laughs> yeah. I, it was very yeah, cool. But I summited the mountain, I did the thing, came back down, and it was, uh, I brought my rock, my, I brought my medicine rock with me the whole time, so it, it's what I meant to do, but whew, never felt more out of depth. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Ninjazen, thank you for joining me on Nodes in the Net once again. You know, I've always been jealous of people who travel a lot, and uh, it's just wonderful to get to live vicariously through you and, and you know, learn the lessons that you're learning by. I, it's like uh, there's probably, like, some dandelion seeds who are like, we should stay where we are, and some that fly off, you know, and that's, I think – uh, what each of them are meant to do, and I appreciate you for bringing back to me all the all the all the wonderful stories. Thank you. Of course, thank you. I always love getting to getting to do this with you, and I always end up getting to process a bit better too, because you know these these dandelion seeds uh, they only germinate under certain conditions. So you know a little bit of ah. a little bit of that added in to help me go like, oh wait, did I just say that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it only comes through right. in, in these conversations. So thank you too. Yeah, I've, I've well I'm honored to I'm honored to be a part of it. Thank you. Yep, there he goes.